It was just Thanksgiving here in the United States, and due to the holiday, I did not have time to prepare the next full episode in our narrative. So I thought for fun, I would put together this shorter episode on a topic that I find interesting, but couldn't quite fit into the broader narrative. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to Germania, Divided and United. Episode 1.9, Call the Doctor. Last time, we discussed the evolution of the relationship between Rome and the Germanic tribes during the 2nd century. As the influence of Roman luxuries and subsidies changed the fundamental character of Germania. Instead of smaller, democratic, equalitarian tribes, they began to show a more permanent hierarchy of nobility based on purchased loyalty using the wealth generated by trade, subsidies, and service in the Roman army. This also led to tighter relationships between tribes, as smaller tribes began to align with the larger tribes. This was the beginning of the larger confederations that arose in the 3rd century. This changing relationship eventually led to the outbreak of the Marcomannic Wars, as I said at the end of the last episode. Next time, we will pick up that story and discuss the key events of the war. But this week, I wanted to take a little detour to cover another cause of the wars that I can't really work into the larger story, but I think is worth discussing. In addition to the economic and political entrapments that attracted the Germanic tribes to Roman culture, another luxury that enticed them to become Roman clients and push for entry into the empire on their own terms was the superior medical care they saw within the Roman border armies. So I think it makes sense to take a survey of medicine in the second century and understand what counted as the best. Like most pre-modern societies, life both within and outside the empire was defined by high infant mortality, an early age of marriage, and a high number of pregnancies within marriage. While we obviously do not have accurate statistics, Life expectancy at birth in this period was around 20 to 30 years and was influenced by your wealth and citizenship status. You were a slave, a non-citizen resident, pleb, or patrician. As always, life expectancy was heavily influenced by infant and childhood mortality, with perhaps 30% of babies dying in the first year and another 15% dying before age 5. For the roughly half of the population that survived to age 10, they could expect to live perhaps 40 more years, with significant variability depending on outbreak of disease or war. So, when Gibbon said that mid-2nd century Rome was perhaps the best time to be alive in all of human history, he really should have specified that you needed to be a wealthy patrician male who had already avoided dying in childhood. In the Mediterranean world of the 2nd century, medical knowledge and practice was still dominated by the Greeks, and still followed the Hippocratic Corpus, a collection of works that started with the teaching of Hippocrates, the father of medicine. Hippocrates was born around 460 BC on the island of Kos, where he would eventually found his medical school. Today, Hippocrates is probably best known for the physician's oath that is meant to guide the professional practice of medicine. For the history of Western medicine, his biggest contribution was that Hippocrates really began to separate the practice of medicine from religious belief. 
we do not have particularly accurate biographies of Hippocrates' early life, but you will often see him described as either the son of a physician or the son of a priest. But at that point in history, there really wasn't a difference between the two. Hippocrates focused on natural causes of disease, environmental factors, lifestyle, and diet. He and his school provide some of the earliest descriptions of different diseases. Hippocratic medicine was focused on passive treatment that was based on prior observation and case studies of similar afflictions. Anatomy was not well understood due to the prohibition on dissection of the deceased, and the theory of the four humors really began the dominant theory in explaining different conditions. Within Rome, physicians were not well respected as a professional class, as it was so dominated by educated Greek slaves or freedmen. Since medical training was not standardized or regulated in any way, it was difficult to tell how knowledgeable any given doctor was, and as a class they were treated with great skepticism. However, by the mid-2nd century, we see evidence that Roman emperors at least saw the need for effective practitioners across the empire. During the reign of Antoninus Pius, he changed the treatment of tax exemptions for towns and cities across the empire, allowing for the number of tax-exempt professionals in a city to favor physicians over both lawyers and teachers by as much as two to one. For comparison, in the United States in 2021, lawyers outnumber physicians by about four to three. Medical care was available to the army, and within their camps they could set up primitive field hospitals, but most wounded soldiers would eventually die of septicemia, or sepsis. Germ theory was not yet understood, and there was obviously no access to antibiotics. Staples of medicine at this point included amber and olive oil, and a priority was put on trying to expose an ill person to the right type of air to cure them. This could mean moving them to a more favorable climate or strategic utilization of bonfires. Deadly diseases were common at this point, and while it is difficult to provide a post hoc diagnosis of any particular epidemic, outbreaks of malaria seem to have been fairly common, and epidemics of other diseases, including smallpox, typhus, and bubonic plague, occurred periodically. The most famous physician of 2nd century Rome, and the man who would rise to become the personal physician of Emperor Marcus Aurelius, was Claudius Galenus, known to the English-speaking world today as Galen. Like all great Western physicians of this era, Galen was Greek, born in 129 in Pergamum, which was located near the modern city of Bergama, Turkey. He was from a patrician family, the son of a wealthy architect and builder, Based on his clear intellectual gifts, he and his family expected that he would pursue the life of a professional philosopher. Uh, in Greece, this was actually encouraged, rather than cause for your father to throw you out of the house and tell you to get a real job. During his rebellious teenage years, Galen became a devotee to the god Asclepius, the god of healing and medicine, whose temple was near Pergamum. At this point, a great orator who was suffering from several diseases had taken to coming to the temple and giving great orations, asking Asclepius for relief. Galen was greatly affected by all of this, and that began his turn away from philosophy towards medicine. As a side note, in Greek mythology, Asclepius had several daughters who supported him in the medical arts. 
Uh, among them were Hygieia, the goddess of cleanliness, from whom we get our modern word hygiene, and Panacea, the goddess of universal remedy, from whom we get our modern word um, panacea. In 148, when Galen was just 19, his father died and he inherited the family fortune. Following the guidance of the Hippocratic Corpus, Galen took advantage of his new wealth to travel extensively and expose himself to different schools of medical thought. He eventually spent time studying under Numicianus in Alexandria, where Galen was exposed to most of the Hippocratic Corpus and determined that Hippocrates was the greatest physician ever and that medicine should be focused around theory. Galen initially found fame by treating a famous Syrian philosopher. The man had lost the feeling and function of two of his fingers after falling from a chariot, and Galen was able to cure him. At the age of 28, Galen considered his medical education complete and returned to Pergamum to set up his own practice, leveraging his family fortune both to endow a medical library as well as refusing to charge a fee to any patient. That was helpful to the people of Pergamum as the only public investment in medical care went to the army with physicians attached to the different legionary camps. Imagine, an empire as wealthy as Rome, and if a common citizen needed medical care, they were at the mercy of some wealthy benefactor. Galen took up an official post as the physician to the gladiators owned by the high priest of Asia, and developed a method for treating thigh wounds over the next four years that reduced annual deaths from the injuries from 60 per year to just two. According to Galen, uh, aka the story is BS, he earned this job by eviscerating an animal and challenging any of his rivals to treat the wound. When they all refused, he calmly repaired the injury. He then sent a letter to his girlfriend in Canada telling her all about it. You wouldn't know her, but she is super hot and totally into him. In 162, Galen had to flee Pergamum after a political dispute, and he quickly won his way into the imperial circle by curing the wife of one of Marcus Aurelius's close advisors, and soon found himself giving anatomy lessons to the emperor as well as some of his trusted senators. Galen eventually left Rome for a period of time, but he was eventually recalled to serve the imperial family, and was personal physician to both Marcus Aurelius and Commodus. He also attended to Septimius Severus after the fall of the Antonines, although now we're getting way ahead of ourselves. Obviously, Galen is not famous today because of who he treated, but because of the medical and anatomical theories he left behind. To get around their prohibition on dissecting the dead, Galen conducted autopsies and other experiments using animals, particularly apes. 1,700 years before Charles Darwin, Galen understood that there was similarity between the anatomy of humans and primates. Based on his research, Galen defined the anatomy of the trachea and identified that the larynx generates the voice. He made major contributions to understanding the circulatory system, including the fact that there are differences between dark venous blood and bright arterial blood. He was not correct in the nature and causes of those differences, but still, baby steps. Galen identified that there were three forms of malaria that followed different prognoses. Uh, he pioneered research on the human spine and studied the differences between motor and sensory nerves. His work played a role in the later definition of the central nervous system. 
Galen developed a method for conducting surgery on the eye to remove cataracts that is apparently very similar to the practices used today. Uh, Galen was the first to propose that the organs of the body each had their own separate function. Uh, Galen made the argument for the linkage of the mind and body and provided early works on psychotherapy and dream interpretation. Galen was a prolific writer, uh, reportedly having 20 scribes to take his dictations. It is thought that he may have written as many as 500 different treaties that combined to over 10 million words, though less than one-third of that output still survives. The writings of Galen account for roughly half of the surviving writings from all of ancient Greece. His research and theories continued to have a major influence on the practice of medicine well into the Renaissance, when more scientific study of human cadavers allowed for a more complete understanding of anatomy. So, you can see why the Germanic tribes would want access to Roman medical care. They could have their thigh wounds treated, they could get cataracts scraped out of their eyeballs, and when someone decided they needed bleeding, you had a choice between dark blood and bright blood. However, Galen best demonstrated his understanding of medicine in 166. We will discuss this more next week, but in that year, as soldiers returned to Rome from the Parthian War, they brought with them one of the more famous plagues of antiquity, the Antonine Plague. As Galen saw what was happening, he rolled up his sleeves and uh, quickly packed and left for a smaller coastal town, away from the cramped quarters of Rome. Because no ancient medical theory explained the Antonine Plague, and as it devastated Europe for the next 15 years, it must have seemed reasonable that it was not a natural illness, but a punishment sent by the gods.